everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman. Today we are going to be taking a look at the canonization process of the scriptures. This is part of our ongoing uh, series on church history where we did a couple weeks on church history from the birth of the church through Constantine, then through the Reformation, and paused to look at parenting, and then we looked at heresies and creeds. Next week we're going to look at just some of the modern trends that are affecting the church around the world today, but today I want to look at the canonization process and I think more specifically, Drew, we're looking at not just how did the scriptures come to be, but when we pan back, why is this such an important topic for believers? I think there are some obvious answers, but then I think there's some not so obvious answers. And as I've prepped some of the content today, I'll just dive in by looking at the question behind the question, which in this case is, how do we know things to be true? And this is, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but this is the branch of knowledge called epistemology or the the study of knowledge. Like, how do we actually know things? And neither Drew or I are philosophers by training. And so if you actually study epistemology, you're going to come across terms like justified belief and indefeasibility and other concepts that are over my head. But for our purposes today, when we talk about epistemology, we're talking about the way that we know something as truth. Just by way of review, and we've talked about this at length in this podcast, but in the modern era, we are naturalists, we are materialists, where we only think of something to be real if we can empirically verify it in a lab, we can experience it, see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, or it is verified through testimony, through the observations of those whom we trust. And that's how we think about history. None of us uh, today were alive in the year 1850, for instance, yet we believe it actually happened because there are thousands and thousands, millions upon millions of eyewitnesses account that that year actually happened. But if you think about it, there's no reason that we should just believe at face value that the year 1850 happened, except for the testimonies of those who've gone before us. So most of our epistemology today is based on observation and testimony, that which we can empirically verify and that which we can trust that actually happened based on the observations of those maybe who've gone before us or or somewhere in the world today, the academy and, and so on and so forth. Whereas for Christians or really any any person of faith, they have a belief in the metaphysical. They have a belief in something beyond what we can empirically verify in a lab. And actually, there are many more branches of epistemology, and we talk about things like beauty and justice and so on. But again, for practical purposes today, we're talking about observation, testimony, and then for the person of faith, revelation. And as a Christian, and and Drew, you've talked about this at length, as you've referred to Karl Barth in the past, that he's a huge proponent of the fact that we can know nothing about God except for what he chooses to reveal of himself. And so certainly all people of faith, but as followers of Jesus, we're talking about the Christian faith today, that we have a belief epistemologically that God reveals himself and that is established as real and as truth, even if we can't see it, taste it, touch it, etc. 
that there is something outside of our experience that is real, possibly even more real than our experience, what C.S. Lewis calls the, the shadow lands, that the, the experience that we have in this life, in this world, is just a shadow of the true world that God inhabits, that one day heaven and earth will come together. Bottom line, when we talk about epistemology, as a Christian, we have three main branches of epistemology, if you will, that of observation, that of testimony, and then that of revelation, that God is real, and we know that because he has revealed himself to us. Now, this is not a podcast on apologetics, and we could talk about the fact that there is an extremely rational basis for faith within the Christian tradition, talk about the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the the historicity of that event and the eyewitness accounts and, and so on and so forth. But today we're going to focus in on the scriptures and the whole idea and the reason we're starting this way is that the whole idea behind the scriptures is that they speak of things that had to be revealed to the writers. There were certain things like, you know, Peter's testimony, we just read it devotionally this morning with our kids. Even though Peter was with Jesus and saw him heal the sick and walk on water and multiply food and raise the dead, yet when he made his famous proclamation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and in response to Jesus's question, you know, who do you say I am? Jesus's response to him was, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you. Or in other words, Peter, there's no way you figured that out on your own. That had to be revealed to you by my father. And this is a really key understanding that we must have as believers when we talk about the word of God, uh, the scriptures, that we're talking about something that was revealed to many people over many thousands of years that was then written down. And there was a process, of course, that we're going to talk about this canonization process. But it started with the self-revelation of God. Now, when you look at the different forms of the quote-unquote word of God, of the revelation of God, you're going to see you're going to see quite a few in the in the scriptures and throughout history. Uh, one is decree, when you know, it says God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. That the existence of anything actually is a form of revelation, and we see that again in Romans one twenty. Another form of the Word of God is personal address, where God actually speaks to people audibly. We see this in the Garden account, where God is speaking with Adam and Eve. And on throughout the scriptures, different instances where God speaks directly to people. We see God's speech through people. So that would be like the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, David, Moses, different types of prophets throughout the scriptures where God speaks directly through people. We see the revelation of God through the person of Jesus in, in a primary sense. And, and there's so many scriptures we could talk about there. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us, i.e. revealed himself to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So lots of different forms of the word of God, but what we're going to focus in on here for the next 20 or so minutes is the Bible itself as a form of revelation, as the word of God, and, and what we believe to be a true epistemology for a variety of reasons. But we're going to look at, uh, I think a lot of us today, you know, certainly for me, not growing up in the church, and, you know, somebody gave me a Bible in high school, and I just kind of began to read it, and, and it was a powerful book that I couldn't put down, actually, for many years, read it from cover to cover several times, but I didn't understand where it came from. I never actually really gave a thought to where it came from, and 
it just kind of had always existed. And then in the process of growing as a believer, getting involved in the church, discovering that there's a rich history behind the process, the formation process of the scriptures, that actually it could make people feel uncomfortable. It didn't descend from heaven or you know come through one oracle, like we think of Mormonism and Joseph Smith or Islam through Muhammad, but it was this kind of messy process, or at least what might seem messy on the surface. And Drew, you've touched on this many times, the fact that God chooses to work through people. He is both transcendent, but then imminent. And in his imminence, he partners with humanity. That's an amazing thought that God would entrust the process of something so central to faith as the formation of the scriptures to mere humans is an incredible thing. And that adds the complexity. That's what makes history hard because we see all this confusion. We see people sin. We see disputes. We see all these different things that jolt us. They shake us. But if we recognize the reason for that is because humanity has fallen. Humanity is unreliable. We are untrustworthy in so many different ways, yet in the mercy of God, he's committed to working through us, and he's committed to his purposes being accomplished in us despite our sin. And to me, that's such a powerful image of grace. And so you think about God worked through Adam, then God called Abram and worked through Abram. God himself became a man in the incarnation, then the church is the way that God has and does reveal himself, and ultimately God, the Spirit, inspired the human authors of Scripture to preserve a reliable account and witness an authoritative account for the church, you know, that, that then becomes the foundation for history. I mean, it's just remarkable to me that the Spirit would continually work through people so that he might reveal himself on the earth. That's great, Drew. So with that as a setup, we're actually going to do this out of order. We're going to start with the New Testament, talk about the canonization process for the New Testament, and then backtrack and look at the canonization process of the Old Testament. Drew, why don't you dive in with some thoughts on how the New Testament came to be? The New Testament was written between the year 50 and 100 AD. First Thessalonians, Galatians, the Corinthian letters, and Romans are the earliest. Books like Revelation and Second Peter are some of the later books, um, some of the John's writing or Jude, and you know, some of those, it's just hard to know exactly when they were written. Now, the dates of authorship are disputed, and you'll see this a lot if you study, depending on who you read. I'll just throw this out there. I affirm the historic, you know, the tradition of the church with authorship. So if the, you know, if a letter in scripture says Paul wrote it, I believe Paul wrote it. If it said Peter wrote it, I believe Peter wrote it. The main reason for that being challenged over the years, and several people, even still to this day, arguing for later dates where they're saying, to use an example, not that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, but that maybe somebody else wrote the book, potentially 20, 30 years after Paul's death, and they, maybe they were in the school of Paul, so they used Paul's name as like a pseudonym, but Paul himself didn't actually write it. So you'll come across that quite a bit, and a lot of the reason for that is grammar differences in books. And so Ephesians will use a lot of different words and a different writing style than a book like Galatians. And so that leads people to believe that Paul could only have written one. What's interesting is that was a very common line of attack. But actually, as time has gone on, what we have discovered is that we were thinking about that from a very 21st or 20th or 19th century perspective of how books get written. But if you go back to that that day and time, you know, they didn't have typewriters. They didn't have access to paper like we do. And so what you had is you actually had secretaries, and their job was to write things down. And so even very highly educated people, they didn't write. You know, And even the act of writing, how you made ink, which you had to make, how you secured paper, how you built out a pen, those were all very technical skills that not everybody had. So you actually see one of Paul's letters, 
he signs it at the very end by saying, see what long letters I write, or, you know, this is my handwriting. Basically what he's saying is that most of the time, you know, a secretary is going to write something, and then here's me signing off at the end or adding this ending that I'm writing, and, you know, even his handwriting looks different, and he acknowledges that, you know, kind of saying, yeah, this is what happens if I don't have my normal person doing this for me. It looks like this. He's saying things like that. And secondly, writing was done as a team. And so we think of it very individualistically, but you even see this in a lot of Paul's letters. It's, you know, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing or whomever it may be. They're writing together, and that means that they're contributing ideas. And so that easily accounts for grammar differences, stylistic differences. A very trusted secretary would be given a lot of latitude where uh, you might even have somebody dictating central concepts, but they're, you know, using certain writing conventions and styles and they're incorporating all of that, and that's what we're coming across. So I just use that as an example of, you know, people will say things to try to discredit, but I actually think as time has gone on, it affirms uh, traditional authorship. And where that becomes really significant is that then establishes a very early date for the writing of letters. And what that means is that the letters of the New Testament, they, they do give witness to the real teaching of the church in the immediate years after the resurrection of Christ, and they're not some later invention by the church but something that establishes early. And even if somebody, you know, tried to make a case for a certain letter being later, which again, I'm going to disagree with, um, it is undisputed that letters like 1 Thessalonians or the Corinthian letters or Romans were written two decades after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's incredible if you think about just the depth of theological reflection so early in the life of the community. I'll add one other element that I think is incredibly significant is that the letters of the New Testament were written when eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus were still living. And that's a very big difference. So I'll use an example. If somebody asked me to write a book about the Civil War, I could write all kinds of things, and there's nobody alive today who can challenge me based on their eyewitness account. Historians can challenge me, but nobody is alive who could challenge me based on their own personal experience. But if I wrote a book on 9-11, then all of a sudden, there's a whole lot of people that lived through that and they could challenge me based on my vantage point. And to me, that's an important important thing to note is that these letters, these claims about Jesus that, you know, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the number of people who are eyewitnesses, well, those eyewitnesses were mostly still alive. It's very different to make that claim when you're writing in the year 55 AD than it is if you made that claim in the year 155 AD, when there's nobody around anymore, you can make a claim like that. There's no one who can dispute it. And so that's that becomes super significant, and I think is something that helps us just understand just how reliable the scripture actually is. The first canons that we start to see, or lists that we start to see, started to emerge. I mentioned Marcion earlier um, in the year 130, 140 AD. He had a list, and it actually had a lot of the um, epistles that we have in our modern Bible. And so that's encouraging. And it wasn't so much that he added things, but he subtracted certain letters that he thought were too Jewish. It was the way he did it. You have the Maratorian canon in the year 170, and it had all of the books of the New Testament except for James, Hebrews, and First and Second Peter, but the rest of them were present. And then the final canon that is the, that is the modern New Testament took shape with Athanasius, who was a really prominent figure in the early church, writing from Alexandra in the year 367 AD. He kind of finally established it, you know, these are the books of the canon, and from then on out, it was accepted. 
That does not mean that those books were not accepted as canonical before that. It just means that was when some of the disputes on some of the last books, like the book of Revelation, were finally established. And in some ways, it wasn't so much what books were going to make the cut at the end that are in our New Testament, but there was other writings that were really popular in the early history of the church, like the Shepherd of Hermas, or books like that, that were referenced and even cited by the church fathers, but ultimately were not included in the final canon. So it wasn't just books that we have that people were challenging whether or not they should be in there. Most of that, there was actually not that much discussion about it. Instead, it was other books that were really influential that the church was eventually deciding not to utilize. But what seems pretty clear is that at a very early date, these books were accepted and used in worship. They're you know, quoted very heavily by the earliest church fathers. Their concepts are seen in the writings of the church fathers. And you know, even you just think in the age before there was the printing press, before there was the internet, before there was modern travel, the letters were already pretty widespread. The letters of Paul were already widespread in his lifetime and shortly after his lifetime. So it just shows that these were accepted as authoritative from a very early time frame, and it just took some time for the church to really finalize which ones would be considered canonical and which ones would be good. You know, you think of modern, there's a lot of great spiritual books that we can affirm and recognize, but we just, of course, we're not calling them scripture. That same dynamic's happening in the early church. There's a lot of good writings that they can recognize and utilize, but they're not being affirmed as scripture. Awesome. So we're going to back up now and look at the Old Testament canon and really the, this whole idea, kind of circling back again epistemologically to the idea of God revealing himself. And the earliest idea of the scriptures came from this idea that God actually spoke to humans. The earliest collection of the written words of God was actually the Ten Commandments. And that's the only form of the scriptures that, in a sense, God wrote himself and that he inscribed the Ten Commandments on the stones on Mount Sinai, of course, that has not been preserved. We don't have the original stones, but that whatever God wrote on the stones is what is now preserved in the in the book of Exodus. It was this idea that those laws were written with the finger of God. And when you think of the, the Pentateuch on the whole, the first five books of the Bible, most scholars believe that Moses wrote the five, first five books of the Bible, and this was probably during the wilderness period, but there's wide agreement that Moses penned the original five books of the Bible. Now, much of that was revealed directly to Moses on Mount Sinai and beyond, that, that God was revealing to Moses how the nation of Israel was to live. You see this in Deuteronomy 31, where it says, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, etc., that God is speaking directly to Moses, he's writing this down. And that's the, the pattern we see throughout most of the Old Testament that Joshua wrote in 24, Joshua 24, that uh, Samuel wrote these things down, that the prophets wrote down the oracles of God. Basically, God was speaking to different individuals, and then they wrote down the revelation of God. And these were collected by the Jews throughout the centuries and eventually became the canon of the Old Testament. Now, after about 435 BC, there were no further additions to the Old Testament. The subsequent history of the Jewish people was recorded in other writings, such as the books of the Maccabees, uh, but these writings weren't considered worthy by the Jewish community to be included with the collections of God's words from earlier years, to be thought of more as like historical books. No one was making a claim that God had spoken directly to them and was revealing something of himself and of his law and of how Mankind was to relate to him like the previous authors had done. 
Now, some of the reasons that we believe in the authority of the Old Testament canon that had already been compiled you know, as early as several centuries B.C., was that in the New Testament, we don't see any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the Old Testament canon. Uh, apparently, by the New Testament times, there was full agreement between Jesus and his disciples on the one hand, and the Jewish leaders or Jewish people on the other, and that additions to the Old Testament canon had ceased after the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And this is confirmed by the quotations of Jesus and the New Testament authors of the Old Testament. Uh, according to one count, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote various parts of the Old Testament scriptures as divinely authoritative over 295 times, uh, but not once do they cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha or other writings as having divine authority. Not to say they don't reference other works. Um, there are a couple of references. Paul makes references to some Greek uh, literature. There's references to some of the Apocrypha with Janus and Jamber and a few other references, but they're not referenced as a divinely authoritative for revealing truth. They might be historical references to make a point in terms of a New Testament writing. But when Jesus quotes something as being divinely authoritative, he's quoting directly from the Old Testament canon, the same with the rest of the New Testament writers. So the absence of any such reference to other literature as being divinely authoritative, the frequent reference to hundreds of places in the Old Testament as being divinely authoritative, for us that gives strong confirmation to the fact that we see the New Testament authors agreed that the established Old Testament canon, no more, no less, was to be taken as God's very words. Now a couple thoughts here on the Apocrypha. I think there are a few terms that get thrown around that trip people up. You have the Apocrypha, you have the Pseudepigrapha, you have the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, basically, the Apocrypha and the Deuterocanon are the same thing, and then the Pseudepigrapha refers to something different. The Apocrypha would, again, be those historical books that are outside the Old Testament canon that aren't considered divinely inspired, but they are regarded as worthy of study. And you might think of it as like... Um, you know, in a lot of modern Bibles, you have glossaries, you have maps, you have some commentary. Even though it's included in the Bible in the sense that it's it's bound in the same pages as the Bible, we don't read that the same way we would read the book of John. It's, it's there as a reference. And for the Jews, the intertestamental Jews, they would include these books as reference books, as historical books that were then preserved in the first 1,200, 1,300 years after Jesus and a lot of the different distributions of the scriptures would include these historical Jewish books as being important but not on par with scripture. Now, the pseudepigrapha would be false works claiming to be written by a biblical figure. These would be examples like the Gospel of Thomas. And here's one quote from the Gospel of Thomas to just to illustrate how much of a departure from orthodox doctrine some of the pseudepigraphal books actually are. Here's a quote. Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think we need to expound on the fact that that is a, a such a gross departure from orthodox doctrine that it obviously does not merit canonization. And there's if you look at the science of textual criticism, the pseudepigraphal books have very questionable authorship, and most of the manuscripts are just seven, eight hundred years old, whereas the canonized New Testament books 
have manuscripts that date back to just 50, 100, 150 years after the time of the, the initial writing. So with that, Drew, why don't you give us a few last thoughts on manuscript before we wrap this up? We do have manuscripts um, from John's Gospel. We actually have the physical paper intact from the year 130 where there's fragments of John's Gospel, which is just remarkable. Remarkable that that survived. Uh, you know, remember the church was widely persecuted and poor, so it wasn't like these are the records of the Roman Empire. This is a collection of poor people writing on papyri that's subject to all kinds of decay, and yet we still have surviving manuscripts within 100 years of Jesus' resurrection. And if you look at how the manuscripts develop, and this is a whole other topic, it's, it's pretty widely accepted that what we have today is authentic, can be traced to an early date, and has not been tampered with in history. And, and I think that's really powerful. But it was during this whole process of heresy and creed, it's simultaneously the church is also affirming the canon of Scripture. That's great, Drew. And the only other thing I'd say about the New Testament canonization process is when we look at the nature of authority, Scholars will talk about the internal evidences for authority and the external evidences for authority when it comes to the authority of the scriptures. And But if we start with the person of Jesus and work our way outward, Jesus demonstrated authority, so his, his miraculous lifestyle, and then preeminent among the miracles would be predicting his own resurrection, death and resurrection, and then raise, you know, rising from the dead, having all of the eyewitness accounts of that. So he demonstrated authority. He conferred authority in that he conferred authority on the on the disciples in John 14, 15, 16, that they would eventually, the Holy Spirit would quicken their minds, their memories to write down what Jesus had taught and lived. And then he also, we already talked about this, but he also affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. And so he spoke authorita- authoritatively about the Old Testament scriptures. So he demonstrated authority, he conferred authority, and then he affirmed the authority of the scriptures. And and that's kind of the, the basis of faith. And there, there's the science of textual criticism. There's a historicity of the scriptures from extra biblical sources. And there's a lot of other scholarly approaches we can take to looking at the canonization of the, of the Bible and why we should believe in, again, epistemologically, revelation as a source of truth, why we should trust the authority of the scriptures. But it all, at the center, in, in our opinion, is, is Jesus himself and the authority that he demonstrated, conferred, and affirmed. And so I think a last point of application would be for the believer, we can have confidence in the scriptures. And yes, there is now then the process of good exegesis, good hermeneutics. That is, what was the author intending to say? How do we apply that? How do we interpret that? And of course, there are passages that are difficult. There are whole doctrines that are difficult to disentangle. But as a starting point, the belief that God reveals himself, that that revelation was written down in a process that was guided by the Holy Spirit in conjunction with real people in real time, but to the end that we have an authoritative source that reveals the nature of God, the nature of man, and how we can interact with him, we can have tremendous confidence as believers. That's a good place to stop for today. Again, this is just another installment of about five on church history as we're looking back and looking at the trends, the events that shaped where we are today. This process, of course, with canonization is so huge because we predicate a lot of how we understand our faith and the nature of God and salvation, etc., 
on the scriptures and they have a firm foundation in their existence and we can take confidence as believers. Thanks for tuning in as always. And next week we will again look at kind of how we got to where we are today, looking at the last couple of hundred years of church history, the different streams that are influencing the church today. Uh, Until then, hope you have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on Ideology.